No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. Throughout October, we will be spotlighting intimate partner violence, or domestic violence as it's more commonly referred to. Intimate partner violence impacts all types of intimate relationships, regardless of gender, socioeconomic status, or marital status. Today, we're speaking with Bill Mitchell, who lost his daughter, Kristen, to intimate partner violence. After the murder of his daughter, Bill became a self-taught expert in dating violence. He is now the author of When Dating Hurts, a book about Kristen, dating violence, and the impact of Kristen's loss on the entire family. He is also an in-demand public speaker, his own podcast host, and a fierce advocate for dating violence and ending it. So Bill, welcome to No Gray Zone. We are so happy to have you. It's an honor to be asked to come on here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Bill, as we've discussed, it's really important for us to highlight intimate partner violence and dating violence in particular. We know in this country, the statistics tell us that about 20 people every minute are physically abused by an intimate partner with one in four women and one in nine men experience severe physical violence or sexual assault. But before we get into dating violence, what you've learned throughout your journey, we're hoping that you could first just share a little bit about Kristen with us and our listeners. Yes. Well, thank you for asking. You know, um, Kristen was a great kid. I oftentimes think, you know, you see things on TV and and somebody is is killed tragically and they say this is like the most wonderful kid and so sweet and so nice and kind and all. But I I swear in in her case, she really was. At the time of her murder on June 3rd, 2005, Kristen had just graduated from college and she had a job lined up at General Mills. So she was kind of all set to go. And uh, she was 21 when, when she was attacked but she was pretty, you know, she was blonde, she had blue eyes and, and uh, she was very cute, much like her mom. And she was very smart too. She was on a partial scholarship to St. Joseph's University. And when I think of Kristen, I think of somebody who was very generous to people, to really everyone. And she was also very creative. She liked to write. So we have some of her writing and, and her poetry and fun to be with, had a great sense of humor, I think, and, and uh, lots of friends. We, we met because of what happened, we met so many of her friends after she was gone. You know, these are people we probably never would have met otherwise, who kind of came to us and introduced themselves. But she dearly loved animals, too. We always had cats in the house and still do. She, she always loved her cats and had hamsters and rode horses and equestrian events and loved her family, loyal to her friends. You know, so she was just your really kind of good all around young woman, you know, with her whole life ahead of her. I mean, she was blossoming. She was ready to go. You know, 
that time after college, when you get that first job is such an important time. So many women, so many families, you know, you really get to see your kid, you know, shine for the first time. So it, it is so tragic to lose a, a child anytime, but when you know that they're about to engage on this great journey of their life, it's especially tragic. And we know that Kristen's ex-boyfriend is who murdered her and that he ultimately pled guilty to third degree murder and was sentenced to 15 to 30 years for her murder. But prior to their breakup, was there anything now that you look back on that other family members saw that were red flags that, that you may not have thought about you know, in the moment at the time? You know, not very much. The The thing was that she went to school just outside of Philadelphia and we live outside of Baltimore. So we were pretty much here and she was there. So we didn't really meet him until her, her graduation day. That was really the first time. Ironically, the, the first time I met him, the first time I saw him was actually the last time I was around my daughter. You know, that's, that's just happened to be a way that we worked out. So we didn't have many opportunities, but her friends did. And after everything was said and done and, and she was she was killed and we had time to catch up with her friends, that's when there were opportunities to say, well, did you notice things? I mean, we didn't even know the words to use because it was immediately after. We didn't say things like red flags and warning signs. And we saw it as a horrible thing, a, a murder. We didn't think of it as domestic violence or anything like that. We didn't put it in under that umbrella because we just didn't know enough. So... But her friends saw a lot of the, what you might call now the classic warning signs of, of him with his dominant behavior and his style was, was very controlling about everything she did. And he was always jealous of her being with any of her friends. And, but, you know, now I can talk about things like isolation techniques and keeping her away from her friends and possessive behavior and unhealthy relationship type talk. You know, I can do that stuff now. I, I've got it at my fingertips. Back then I'd say, well, what's that? What's that? And her friends would have said the same thing, but he was always calling and texting, always had to know where she was, was unhappy when she wasn't with him. And so, you know, we, we really learned everything we did really after she was gone. And, and that's when her friends really knew how then to interpret the behavior that they saw with their own eyes. Well, as you mentioned, a lot of these things you didn't know at the time, you didn't know there were red flags or these kinds of unhealthy relationship markers. And after the loss of Christian, you and your wife have really set about learning everything you can, trying to work within your community, share this information so that, you know, hopefully other families don't have to go through what your family has gone through. We know the research and the statistics show us that a survivor of intimate partner violence, it's about seven times before they actually leave the abusive relationship. So you've learned all this information. Looking back now, what is just one or two things that you wish you had known or that you would have been able to have a conversation with your children about unhealthy relationships before they went off to college, signs that you wish they know or that all young people know as they're embarking into these serious relationships now? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, some of the ones I just mentioned uh, just earlier, you know, the, that kind of controlling behavior, you know, always keeping tabs, trying to isolate friends. I mean, I've had conversations with people since I've learned these things and they say, oh, yeah, that goes on with my roommate or that's what my sister's going through right now. Those type of things. So, yeah, I kind of wish everybody had these on their mind, you know, not just that, that they would look at these as potentially toxic behavior or unhealthy relationships, 
but also look at them like, okay, this is part of a bigger thing. You could run a whole, what you'll call now, you know, a fatality assessment, let's say, of, of what this is, you know, like there's some lethality, fatality, you know, those types of things. But her friends saw these warning signs and, and I know they never would have associated with where that could go. I mean, I don't think anybody's making a leap that this guy's difficult or he's a big bother. I know her, her one roommate before she moved to the apartment where she was killed, but her roommate just avoided him. She couldn't stand this guy. You know, and I'm sure he thought that was great, you know, because he didn't he wanted her to be isolated. He didn't want her the other one around. I think that that's, you know, such an important point is that people who are in the field, whether it's through tragedies such as yours or through the work that Catherine and I do as prosecutors, we know the signs, sure. the, the checklist. Right. Of course you do. But the people who need it don't know. Right. Our average citizens who are, who are the ones who are in these relationships, who are the ones who are seeing their loved ones in these relationships don't have the tools, don't know the words, and and really just don't know what to do other than, you know, I don't like him, so I'm going to avoid him. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, I think that's where the conversation in someone's head ends. You know, he's difficult. I don't want to be around him. Why are you dating this guy? I mean, there are those types of things, but you don't you don't fit that piece into a bigger puzzle. You know, none of us would. As I've said to people over the last 16 years since this happened, I was as clueless as the next person. Unless somebody would have sat me down and said, look, this is very prevalent, like you gave your one in four statistic. If somebody would have sat down and said, look, this is important. This could really happen to one of your kids. Then I'd say, "Okay, well, what is it? I mean, if somebody were to say, "Okay, let's talk about intimate partner violence, I'd say, wait a minute, I got to process that. That's a whole chain of big ideas there lined up. You know, if you if you really care about your friends, if you really care about your kids, if you're a teacher and you really care about your students, then you have to kind of wake up to this thing because it's extremely pre- prevalent. It's everywhere. It's not just in the rough zip codes, you know, it could be down the street, could be next door. And you have to trust that that learning this, taking the time to focus on it and learning it is is critically important. And Chances are now, once you have that new pair of lenses on your eyes and and you hear things differently, you'll start to pick up on things that used to slide by in the past. When somebody at work gives a conversation about some guy they met or they're dating this guy, well, he's kind of like this, he's kind of like that. You'd probably say, well, wait a minute. That sounds like that conversation I had that day about people who are trouble. You know, it sounds like that guy so or that person, whoever it is. That's why we do what we do, right? You, You folks and me. Absolutely. It is. And I think you've talked to Kristen's friends um, and, and the impact. And I think it's so important because I think for sure. so long, you know, the community and people focus on the on the person who did the abusing, the person who was murdered. And that is an important part of any homicide. But we know that families and friends are so greatly impacted every single time they lose a loved one to a homicide. And the crime doesn't end because there was a trial or a conviction or a plea. That impact of that that homicide follows family and friends, you know, throughout their life. To us a little bit about how this tragedy has affected Kristen's brother and her close friends and, and your family as a whole. Yeah, well, I mean, you make a lot of good points. I'm sure there are people out there who think that once you get through the trial, or in this case, it was a plea, but that, that amounts to the same kind of an outcome. There is some kind of a cl- closure, at least to that part of the story for everybody, the horrible story. But in, in many ways, I think for us, it wasn't the end of it. It was more like the beginning of it, because up until the time that the plea took place, which was 10 months after the murder, up until that time, that was our focus. 
once we left the courtroom, when plea and the sentencing took place, and now he was going off for a good long period of time, once that happens, then you really do go back to your house and it's still quiet and Kristen's not coming back anymore and you, and you have to deal with what you have to deal with. Now, that for us is just past the 16-year mark. And I can say you're right. I mean, it, it doesn't isn't like, well, okay, now there's closure and the tragedy's over with. We live with that every day. I mean, I was woke up to it this morning and I thought about it quite a lot. And it's still very painful for my wife and my son and I. You know, it's 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 never going to subside if it doesn't hasn't stopped by now, have, hasn't dialed down. I always tell people it's just as painful, it's just different. It's a different kind of pain. In the very beginning, you wake up and cry your eyes out, you know, and and, you, and we don't do that now. But but she was 21, and her brother at that time was 17, her brother David, when it happened. And back in those early days, I felt like that his way of dealing with it was to not take the full impact of it, which for a 17-year-old, it's a pretty smart approach, I think, to do something like that. But he saw his, what his parents were going through, and I think he just thought, you guys have got this one. And as time wore on, he was looking forward to being a senior in high school and he's trying to cling to the life he had in some ways before this happened. Although he and Kristen, although four years apart, were, were very close, but not everybody could do what he did. I think really years later, he allowed more and more of the meaning of it to come back to him. And it really, really uh, uh, hit him hard. But her closest friends were rocked by it immediately. I know of a few of her closest friends, probably more than half of her closest friends went into therapy, you know, just to deal with it. I mean, some of them were afraid to date anybody anymore. It's like, well, if this is somebody Kristen cared about and he did this, I don't want to date anybody. And people grieve differently. You know, that's one of the things I sort of knew that, but, but that's one thing I saw very clearly that even the three of us at the house here just dealt with it very differently. I mean, I was one to face it and talk about it. And, and I think that my wife was one more to kind of be very take it as a more of a very personal thing and, and not share her feelings and didn't really want to talk about it a whole heck of a lot. Her grandmother, by the way, who will be 99 in January, still talks about Kristen all the time and misses her very much, loved her very much. You know, grandparents are another group that kind of get forgotten. You think of the immediate family, you think of friends, but you don't tend to think sometimes of other relatives. It really hurt both of my parents. Absolutely. One of my favorite judges when it came down to sentencing time, I thought she could so eloquently make it a visual for everyone to talk about. It's, it's that rock being thrown into a pond and there's that initial splash, which is the loss, but then it's those ripples that keep going out and each ring is another person who's impacted by this loss. Those ripples will go on forever and people will forever be impacted and we never know truly how far out those impacts go. Good way. Yeah, they still rock your boat, don't they? Absolutely. We know one of the things that you did was to write the book when dating her. Yes. And it chronicles Kristen's early life. So everybody gets to know her as more than just a life that was taken by her ex-boyfriend. It also details your family's journey and a list of resources and help and tips. It's I, I've heard you say before, it's kind of broken into three parts, this book. So why was it so important for you to write the book? And can you just share a little bit about the process with us? Sure, I'd love to. You know, I felt that writing the book, When Dating Hurts, was important because 
because other families could learn, I felt so much from our horrible experience, you know, which is really still ongoing. And I felt that I was sure that a lot of parents, a lot of families would really be able to identify with us because we were a family trying to raise two children and raise them well. And, and then something like this comes from the outside in, you know, and, and just nails us and just knocks us flat. Yeah. You know, we're talking about here we are, you know, we go, we, we're raising these kids and one of them graduates. And I remember coming back to work on Monday saying to the, the guys that own the company where I worked, I said, well, we got one of them out of the nest. Now we just have to concentrate on David. So we felt great pride and we felt relief and we felt things were moving along in a really wonderful way. And then 20 days later, get a call from some local police telling us uh, once they met up with me, telling us your daughter's been stabbed to death, you know, and, and then it's just, you know, it's, you're on a whole different tra trajectory, your life, you know, I knew at that moment, things would never be the same. How could they, they wouldn't resemble the lives that we had. So I, I just felt like then over the course of time, I wanted to share it. And I started by writing some articles, putting them out there on LinkedIn, actually. And some of the responses that came back were, were really encouraging and finally, after I had something like 11 or 12 articles, someone said, well, you've written these articles, why don't you just write the book? And I had never really thought that I would commit to doing something like that, some two or 300 page book. So I, I uh, but I felt like, you know, we learned so many things the hard way and other people could get out of that if they listened. I mean, if the book was was written well, you know, if I could pull it off, if if, if it was written well, meaning like, make it compelling, make it a page turner. I tried to write it with the energy of a novel. I didn't want it to be a boo-hoo piece. I didn't want it to come off like some amateur took a crack at writing a book, you know, just because he wants everybody to feel sorry for him or something like that. Because they had to get to the end of the book where there were going to be the warning signs and there were going to be the template that abusers follow. And then where to turn for help, what websites, what phone numbers and things like that. But you asked about the process it took about four years to write the book, and uh, I wasn't sure every step of the way that it would ever get done. You can tend to write yourself into knots at different places, and I was at that time when I started it, I had about nine years I felt like I needed to cover, and some advice I was given was, well, you really don't. You just have to figure out where you want to end the story, so it really covers mostly the first four years after it happened. And I think the crescendo really was speaking at a, an annual luncheon for the House of Ruth Domestic Violence Agency, where there were nearly a thousand people there. So that, that was, for me, a really big deal. That gave me a lot of confidence to go out and give speeches and do things. But, you know, it's one of the things that took a lot of time is to write the book, edit the book, go back and let some of the stuff go. You know, it was too long. One of the hardest things was actually just to make the cover. And by the way, the cover, I think it looks pretty good. I could say so myself. We agree. But, but believe it or not, that cover is about the, the lowest tech cover. It is a piece of white cardboard. It's a locket, which the book talks about, very important locket, lit by a lamp. It was all shot in Kristen's bedroom down the hall here. So it was a lamp, a white background, and the locket shot with an iPhone. And I didn't trust it was going to look as good as it did. I was a professional in advertising for years, so I was going to judge it pretty harshly. But I thought, I don't know. I don't think it's going to get a lot better if I go 
go into Baltimore or shop it out to somebody to get some big still life shooter. I don't think it's going to get any better than this thing. So that's how I did it. But all those things take a while. I probably had 14 different cover designs before I finally said, I think this is the winner. So yeah, all those things take a long time. Self-publishing is tough, worth it, but tough. But it sounds like it was part of the process that you went through to help. I don't want to say heal, because like you said, it's always with you, but to help deal with Kristen's death and the advocacy that you've taken on, not only through writing the book, When Dating Hurts, but through your talks and your speeches. I can't remember the last time a thousand people were in a room in a room together. That seems like uh, decades ago. <laughs> well, believe me, they didn't come to hear me, but uh, but they were there. Most didn't see anybody leave. So that was that was a good thing. But but, but you you've turned all of this into such important advocacy. You talk to the community, you. you take phone calls from concerned dads, you know, and I think that people think of intimate partner violence as a women's issue. It's really not, you know, what, what do you want to say to those dads or concerned parents? It doesn't have to be dads who are listening now about, you know, what they should know, what they should do, how they should educate their, their kids to try to keep them safe. Well, I mean, what I'd say to most parents is that from me talking with, you know, by now it's 16 years, I've talked with hundreds of parents. You know, I, I hadn't thought of it like that before, but it has to be. I mean, if I talk with just a few people over 16 years, it adds up. Most of them don't know a thing about dating violence. And we didn't either. You know, don't feel bad. We didn't either. But we didn't know really a thing about it before the tragedy in 2005. And most people, I think if you do get into a conversation with people, they kind of look at it, they look at you almost funny, like, well, I don't know why you're telling me because that doesn't happen around where we live. You know, that, that might happen in some rough part of town or, or that might happen in certain ethnic groups. And they start throwing out these cliches and stereotypes like I probably did, but uh, they don't get the fact that it can happen absolutely anywhere. And your one in four statistic, about one in four women will suffer serious physical harm from an intimate partner and I usually also throw in the typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24. In fact, that number may even be coming down to more like 15 and 24 and maybe lower the way things seem to be going. But, but that's the only statistic that I put out there in the world is the one that you put out in this podcast today. And so I tell people, if you think that somehow that you're living in this magical protective bubble, I have bad news for you. I mean, I probably thought I would, nothing like this would ever enter into my life. My daughter wouldn't date some guy like that. He disguised who he really was in a lot of ways. And I think some people who, who do prey upon other people get pretty good at it. And that's why you, you need to know some of the warning signs because you'll start to see through this guise that a lot of people who do this put out there and they're practiced. You know, my daughter was 21 when this happened. This guy was a few years older. He was 27 or eight. He could have had half of his life practicing up for dating her, you know, with other people that he dated, you know, things he tried, you know, going out and showering them with nice, uh, you know, with bouquets and taking them to nice places and washing his car or whatever he had to do to really put on a good front. Too much of those good things can, can at least give you a warning that this relationship maybe is needs a little extra thought. So yeah, those are the type of things that, uh, that I urge people to, to give it time to, to listen to podcasts like this, to pay attention, to consider the possibility that it could come into your life one way or another. It may be your best friend's daughter who's dating somebody who has this going on. I don't know. 
some of the people who have approached me are people that I would have figured probably wouldn't ever touch their lives in one way or another. And yet, the, you know, I've gotten those calls and say, look, please don't share this with anybody. But my daughter's going through something right now. She's a senior in high school. I'm obviously very happy to help. And I know I can't get out and talk with everybody. And, and that's actually another reason to, for me to write the book, When Dating Hurts, and and put it on Amazon and you know, encourage people to take a look. I mean, it's like $15.99 on Amazon, not a huge investment in someone's life, someone you really care about. $9.99 for the ebook. It's not terribly expensive. A lot of good information in there. Absolutely. We know that dating violence, intimate partner violence is in every single aspect of our society and it impacts every single one of us. Whether people know it or not, every single person knows somebody who has been impacted by intimate partner violence. And it's something that we talk about all the time. We need to have this national conversation. We need to get this outside of the home and outside of the closed doors so that we can bring this out so that our young people, when they are starting dating, they know what a healthy relationship is and what an unhealthy relationship is. You know, your statistic of 16 to 24 for that most prevalent, it's 100% true. We know when we look at teen dating violence, though, now in this country, it can start as young as 11 for some of that power and control dynamics for digital abuse. So we need to be talking to people. And Bill, as you said earlier, as parents, we need to be talking to our kids. We owe it to them, just like we talk to them about all other kinds of dangers, drinking and driving, drugs. We talk about stranger danger. We need to talk to them about relationship danger. But outside of parents, one of the things that you've done a lot of work on is outreach in communities as well and, and finding ways to bring this national conversation to communities. So what are some of the things that any of our listeners could do in their own community or reaching out or organizations to get more involved to help end dating violence? You know, the, the most immediate thing I think, and is I, I would definitely, I would encourage people to get to their, get to their schools, talk with principals, vice principals, people uh, handle the health curriculum and things like that and, and have people come in and speak get a copy of my book and share it in some way if they want to, you know, and there are other, I don't have the only book, you know, there are plenty of books like this, but you know, I, I've spoken at assemblies. I know not everybody's paying strict attention, but if you can get through to any percentage of the people who were there, you just never know. I've given some speeches at schools. I, in the course of three days, I, I spoke before 2,100 students. When you're the speaker, you see every, <laughs> you see everybody. And you have a good sense of who is not paying attention. You know, a large portion seem to. The boys don't seem to do a very good job as the girls, I should say. But to be fair. But, but anyway, and of course, the younger, the harder it gets. But no matter what, I always have students come up to me afterwards and very quietly share what's either going on or did go on with them in a relationship. And that's when it shows me that if I can even get through to just a small group of the students under those circumstances, it was all worthwhile. But so, you're right. I mean, you don't have to go very far. Somebody's dealing with it or did deal with it or has a best friend who's dealing with it. You can really, you can save somebody's life one way or another, you know, even if it's just emotionally save their lives. It's not always physical, but, but yeah, I, I would do that. I mean, if, you know, if people want to approach their PTAs, obviously that's a way to go. I've spoken uh, 
it's been virtual because of COVID, but I've spoken through um, library book talk kind of things. You can, you can get to some parents that way. Over the course of time, though, I'll tell you, I'm surprised at how, many, how few, I should say, how few times I've had the opportunity to speak before parents. It's, it's usually colleges and high schools. That's almost totally that, that. And domestic violence agencies, of course, will have me come in and talk. And sometimes just to their own people. And, and another group that you wouldn't necessarily think that would be necessary is actually police forces. Because oftentimes when they're getting somebody's story after something happens, they could be hearing warning signs themselves. But unless they're thinking in terms of the way we're thinking about it today, that they could, they could be little pathways into what was really going on when somebody, somebody was hit or, or, or some tragedy took place. So I've been encouraged by some police forces to talk with their men and women. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. You know, and Catherine and I say it all the time that we think, one, that every single domestic violence homicide is preventable, but that it's preventable education because education is going to be the prevention. So important to speak to, you know, our young people, younger and younger, it seems every year. And to parents, because I think you're right, you know, parents really want to believe it's never going to happen right. um, to their kid. Um, and, and the police who are, are frontline to a lot of these incidences who can help kind of guide these men and women who are, who are victims to the right services to try to get out of, you know, a violent situation. That is all the time we have for today. We encourage everyone to get a copy of the book, When Dating Hurts, and we'll have links to it in the podcast notes. You can learn more about Kristen, the book, and how to get involved at whendatinghurts.com. And be sure to check out the podcast, When Dating Hurts. Before we sign off, Bill, though, we're going to turn the mic over to you for any final thoughts. Well, you didn't tell me I needed to give some final thoughts here. So, uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but that's okay. I'll pull something out here. I think that, you know, my final thought is just that it's important for people listening to this podcast to believe that this is all real, this is all going on, and then it can really touch your life in ways that you really wouldn't want it to. And I've been encouraged so much in talking with people about this whole subject over all these years, especially once I felt like I could talk about it intelligently, you know, not just tell my little, my own story. It's just so important because, you know, the, the word of mouth aspect of, of, of knowing what this is and having some insights into some of the clues that it might be going on in someone's life, it really does save lives. I mean, I've, I've managed to capture some notes back over time where, where people have come right out and said that I, I probably wouldn't be here today if I hadn't listened to you or read something you wrote, things like that. So, you know, we can all, it, it's not just me and not just both of you today that are doing it. Anybody can save someone's life if they have the tools. What you're talking about on this podcast is giving people those tools. So I think it's fabulous. Thank you. Thank you again, Bill, for joining us, for sharing Kristen's story and your family's journey through the book and through all of your advocacy. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe and you can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. There are no excuses when it comes to intimate partner violence or not having the right response when it comes to talking to your loved ones about domestic violence. I'm just good at caring too much.